0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3, Hosea chapter 3, It's towards the end of your Old Testament, it's a relatively short minor prophet, and we are taking, as you um, already know, a one-week hiatus from our sermon series in Philippians you also may know, my my ordination exams are coming up in September, and one of the requirements that the examining body requires is that I preach an assigned text from the Old Testament and submit it to to the examination, thus Hosea chapter 3. But I hope it's not too disorientating. I know we're picking up in the middle of a minor prophet, which isn't always easy, but my prayer is that we would see God's love for us in Christ in a, a new and fresh way. Uh, through the book of Hosea. Well, as you're turning there, I'd like to give a brief context to where we're at in Hosea. Now, the book of Hosea was written in the 8th century B.C. And Hosea was a prophet. And he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. As a reminder, the kingdom was unified. There were David and Solomon, and then it was divided. So you had the tribe of Judah, uh, remained in the south in Jerusalem, and then the northern kingdom of Israel was in the town of Samaria. And Hosea is then in this northern part of of Samaria, and he is ministering during a tumultuous time for uh, for Israel. It's one king after another, going after idolatry, and the people are following suit. And this ultimately climaxes in Israel's exile in 722 B.C. from the Assyrians. And Hosea, then, is ministering in the midst of this tumultuous time. So let us now uh, turn our attention to Hosea chapter 3 and the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, "'Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. "'Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel,' though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, Without ephod or household gods, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. May he write uh, his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, as a Reformed church plant, we hold dearly to the truths that were recovered and uncovered during the 16th century Protestant Reformation. And you may be familiar with some of these truths, such as salvation by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Uh, You may be familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the truth that Scripture is the highest authority in the Church of Christ. But one truth which you may not be quite as familiar with uh, is a truth about the love of God. It was articulated by Martin Luther himself about six months after he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And this statement that Luther made has to do with the difference between God's love and our love as human beings. And this is what he says in, in, in paraphrase uh, form. Uh, Luther summed up the difference... By saying that God's love is creative and our love is reactive. God's love is creative and our love is reactive. And what he meant by this statement is that God has set his love upon human beings who have nothing in them to attract this, this boundless love. God then, through this love, makes an unattractive, unholy people. Holy and attractive. God's love is creative. Our love, on the other hand, is reactive. We are naturally inclined to love that which is already attractive, that which is already pleasing in our sight. And our love gravitates to those things. For example, why did you marry your spouse? Why is your best friend your best friend? Our love is reactive, it gravitates to that which is already pleasing. In our Son. Although, to the best of my knowledge, Luther never defended this idea from the book of Hosea, but I think here in Hosea 3, we see God's creative love on display. God's creative love for His people. More specifically, I want us to focus our hearts and minds on the fact that God sets His love upon an unattractive, unholy people and makes them holy and attractive. God sets his love upon a unattractive, unholy people and makes them holy and attractive. This evening we'll consider God's creative love for his people in in three main movements. First we'll consider God's undeserved love, God's persevering love, and God's fulfilled love. God's undeserved love, God's persevering love and God's fulfilled love. So first, God's undeserved love. You see that God chose to set his love upon a wholly unattractive and undeserving people in the nation of Israel. And he illustrates this point in the life of Hosea the prophet. Hosea is meant to be a living illustration to the people of Israel about God's love for them. I'm sure you have noticed in 3.1, Hosea is referring to a woman. Uh, God's commanding him to love a woman. And this, this theme of Hosea's relationship, Hosea's marriage, is the most prominent theme in Hosea 1 through 3. In the midst of this idolatry that I just got done mentioning that's going on in the context of Hosea's lifetime, God commands Hosea... To marry a woman who is going to be basically a prostitute. God tells Jose ahead of time, You're going to marry this woman, and she will be unfaithful to you. She will run, run off from you over and over again. She will have children from these relationships. She will have no regard for you or this marriage. But I want you to marry her. Do you see how striking this is? Because our love generally doesn't operate like this. Our love is reactive. In fact, the second and third verse of this book, back in chapter 1, we read this. Um, we read, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Deguim. This woman's name is Gomer, and Hosea is commanded to go, go marry this woman who's going to have no regard for you or this marriage and be running off over and over and over again. We're left with that question, why? What is the point? Why would God command Hosea to do this? And the point is that this marriage is meant to be that living illustration of God's relationship to his people. Just as Gomer's unfaithfulness did not merit or earn Hosea's faithful love, so too, in a much greater way, Israel's unfaithfulness, their sin, did not merit the faithful and enduring love of God. God knew very well that Israel was going to prove to be unfaithful. But God chose to set his love upon them, anyways this marriage between Hosea and Gomer is meant, again, to show us a number of things. First, we see what what our sin is like before God. And as a result, how undeserving we are of God's love. You know, it is interesting that God uses the example of marriage to illustrate his relationship with his people. When we think about marriage on a human level, it's the most exclusive and intimate of relationships. And unfaithfulness in marriage probably brings about some of the greatest heartache in life. And it's marriage that God uses to illustrate his his relationship to his people. And when we think of a married person running off repeatedly over and over and over again, having multiple lovers, Having no regard for the marriage. We think it's it's despicable. What God is wanting to show us in this passage is that that is what we're like spiritually before God. We all are like spiritual adulterers. Running after idols, running after the sin that pleases us. We of course, don't worship wooden or, or stone statues, but we all love and treasure things either at the same level or more than God every moment of the day. Our hearts are, as John Calvin said, idol factories. We're constantly producing idols, our hearts are constantly gravitating towards idolatry. Boys and girls, it's because of this idolatry, it's because we are sinners which makes us completely undeserving of God's love. In fact, it is quite astounding that the God of the universe, who is wholly blameless, has no moral defect in him, would choose to love sinners. That is astounding. I would like at this moment to read a portion of, of the Westminster Larger Catechism's exposition of the first commandment. The first commandment, as you may know, is you shall know their God before me. It's prohibiting idolatry. And my hope is that as we listen to what is required of us in this first commandment, we would appreciate anew God's undeserved love as we see how utterly sinful we actually are. So, listen to what the first commandment requires of us. We are required to think and meditate, remember, highly esteem, honor, adore, choose, love, desire, fear, believe, trust, hope, delight, rejoice in God, yield all obedience and submission to Him with our whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, sorrowful when in anything He is offended, walking humbly with Him. Now, this is what is forbidden in this commandment. The omission or neglect of anything required in this commandment. Ignorance, forgetfulness, wrong or false thoughts towards him. Undisciplined setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things. Taking them off from him in whole or in part. Deadness in the things of God. And it concludes by saying, Impatience at his workings in this world. His providence, as it were. And this is not all. The catechism goes on and gives much, uh, much, much more requirements that we need to follow. As you heard those things, how did you do? How do you measure up to, to what is required of you? Just in the first commandment. All too often, I think we all can begin to slip into a mindset where we, we think more highly than ourselves in the office. Our level, of, our standard becomes horizontal. We're better than other people. But that's not the standard that God gives us. It's his holy and righteous law. When we hear the law of God, in all its fullness, we recognize the true uh, wickedness and and sinfulness of, of our hearts. In fact, the law, throughout history, from the first time Adam received it all the way until us today, the law requires personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Personal meaning you are responsible to this law. Perfect meaning you have to obey it blamelessly. Not only in an external way, but in an internal way. Your affections, your thoughts, the attitudes of your heart. And it's perpetual. Every moment of every day needs to be perfect. That's what God's law requires of us. When we compare ourselves in light of that picture, I think we all recognize That our hearts are pretty bleak. As the catechism our own catechism says, even the holiest of men in this life have a small beginning of true perfect obedience. So only when we do recognize the sinfulness of our hearts that we can appreciate anew the undeserved love of God towards us. That God did not first love those who loved him, God did not love those who were deserving of his love. God set his love upon us, knowing full well that we were not only sinners, but that we would continue to sin. We are wholly undeserving of, of God's love. Well, God's undeserved love is also a love that perseveres with the sins of his people. And we again see this illustrated in, in the life of Hosea and his wife Dolan. Now, if you look with me at the first verse of chapter 3, where God commands Hosea to bring Gomer back. So in context, they're married. Gomer has run off yet again. And we read this. Go again, love a woman, referring to Gomer, who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. You see here that Hosea's love, Hosea's love for Gomer, it was not a one-time act. He didn't just initially obey God. It was a perpetual His love persevered with his unfaithful love. He went over and over again to bring her back as she kept running on. In fact, in verse 2, we see that she even paid, he even had to pay a price to bring her back. This may be indi- indicating that she was selling herself as, as a prostitute, and he had to go and pay to bring her back into his household. Imagine even the shame of Hosea in that moment. Look with me again in your Bibles at verse 3. Hosea continues, and he said, And I said to her, I mean Gomer, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also will be to you. So here in this verse, Hosea is to bring Gomer back into his household, and is said to put her in a sort of isolation. She can't run off other, uh, for other lovers, but he's not going to treat her as his wife. Meaning he's going to work on the relationship. He's committed to her, and he's going to work on, on this marriage that God is telling him to persevere with. And the point of all of this, again, is to be a picture of God's relationship to Israel. Hosea's persevering love is meant to illustrate God's persevering and enduring love for his people. And we see this right away at the second half of verse 1. He says, uh, we read that Hosea's love is like the love of Yahweh for the children of Israel, as they are turning to other gods and love raising cakes. Raising cakes were used in pagan worship festivals. He's referring to Israel's idolatry. You see, throughout the Old Testament, that Israel was constantly rebelling, constantly breaking God's law, constantly running after idols. Israel was not just unfaithful to God during a century, Hosea's time period. Israel was unfaithful to God from the very beginning. God was very clear about what his expectations were for his people. Moses is hardly down from the mountain. And what what do we find out? Israel is dancing around golden calves. So we see Israel is rebelling constantly throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, that they, you know, they they ran off on God as they were on, on the wedding night. Right from the beginning of this Mosaic covenant, they were unfaithful. They couldn't keep it. Then in verse 4. We see that Israel received God's curse, as was expected due to the law, the Mosaic law that was given to them. That if they obey, they would live in prosperity, communing with God in the land. But if they disobeyed, they would be sent out of the land. And so we see verse 4 referring to exile. Israel is being expelled from from the land. Just as Hosea was to bring Gomer back, but they had this moment of isolation where they are kind of working on their relationship. So too, that's meant to illustrate Israel in exile. So if you look with me in verse 4, we read, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. It's a reference to the Assyrians coming and taking Israel out from the land. King, prince, ephod, these are referring to Israel's worship of Yahweh. Be, uh, god's telling them, you're not going to be able to worship me like you once did. They're going to be gone, king, princes, and ephod. Pillar and household gods, this is referring to their pagan worship. God's saying, you, you also won't be able to work, worship your pagan deities like you once did. So they're, they're in exile. Even though they're in exile, even though they're in exile because of their sin and disobedience, God does not fully cast them out. God's not giving up on Israel during this time of exile. Rather, we see even in exile God's persevering love for this rebellious nation. And why? Why is God, why doesn't God just give up with them? It was because of the promises that he made, uh, made to their forefathers. God promised to Abraham that he would bear responsibility for the covenant curses that his people have have incurred. Not just earthly curses. These are eternal curses. This is the very wrath of God. we see that as Moses, as God passes through those pieces, those dead animals in Genesis 15. God promises to take the responsibility for his own wrath of his people's sin. We also see that God promised to Abraham a land, the promised land. Hebrews tells us that the promised land pointed to heaven. Who's going to earn heaven for for the people of God. Also, the promises, you may be familiar with David. God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that one of David's descendants would always be on the throne and that the messianic king would come from his line. So, throughout the prophets, you see this refrain that God relents, God shows mercy for the sake of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. So these promises need to be fulfilled. And so he will not give up on his people. This covenantal bond of love that God has created with his people can't be broken. can't be broken in the time of Abraham, it can't be pro- broken in our own day. And this is so comforting for us. Although in the, the new covenant we know that God will not exile his church like he did uh, for Israel, or curse them in that manner. Nevertheless, we still, I'm sure, doubt whether God will keep us. Whether God's undeserved love that he showed us at the beginning of our Christian lives will endure, will persevere through all of our setbacks and sins. And will God continue to be faithful, even though I keep struggling with, with this particular sin? Will God's forgiveness really never run out? You see here that God... God perseveres. If you are one of his children, he perseveres in love uh, with you. Boys and girls, God God promises that if you're looking to Christ, he will always love you. Throughout Throughout the Bible, we read that God is a God not only to your parents, but he's a God to you. He's a faithful and loving God. To you, so you can be confident that God will continue to love you because of of this promise. And He He cannot deny Himself; He has to fulfill His promises. Nevertheless, in verse four, as Israel is in exile, it is a moment of suspense. It's a moment of suspense because yes, God's love for Israel undeserved, just as Hosea's love for Gomer was undeserved. Yes, God's love is persevering. He doesn't cast them out even though they are in this out of the land. They can't worship him like they once did. This is illustrated for us with Hosea as he goes yet again to bring Gomer back into his household. But the question that we're left with, is God going to make an unattractive, unholy people attractive? Is he going to fulfill these promises to Abraham, to David? The answer comes to us in verse 5 as we see God's fulfilled love. God's fulfilled love. Well, this illustration that God is using for us in the first three chapters in particular of Hosea is striking. It's unnatural. Our love is a reactive love. Hosea is commanded to marry this woman who is constantly running off on him. And we see Hosea is undeserved, undeserved and persevering love for a spouse who has really no regard for him. But Hosea couldn't pay for the sins of Gomer. Hosea could not make Gomer faithful. Hosea cannot change her heart. But what Hosea cannot do for Gomer, God does for his people in the coming of Christ in the new covenant. So if you please look with me in your Bibles at verse five, Uh, We read afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There are two phrases in particular that signal to us the coming of Christ and and the new covenant. First, Hosea speaks of David their king. Now, who is Hosea referring to? David their king. This is ultimately pointing us to Christ. Pointing us to Christ. Jesus is indeed the true seed of David. The fulfillment of that promise uh, to bring about a messianic king. The very first verse of Matthew, which is also the very first verse of the New Testament, begins this way. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. Jesus Christ is that true seed of David. He is the fulfillment of that Davidic kingship. And that reference to the latter days. That's la- the very last phrase in, in verse five, the latter days. This is, not a ref- this is a reference to the new covenant. Specifically this time in which between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the epoch in which we live currently. Listen to Hebrews 9.26. The author of Hebrews says, Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, or you could say in, in the latter days, in the words of the prophets, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's death has triggered these latter days, the end of the age. Thus, Christ comes in the new covenant to both save and sanctify his rebellious people. Or to put it another way, God in Christ will take responsibility for the sins of his bride. That's what we see in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus will pay the penalty of of Israel's continual rebellion. Jesus will bring forth a righteousness that no human being can ultimately bring forward. Jesus experienced the ultimate exile of God on the cross so that we, his people, will never have to be exiled from God in eternity. But this is not all. He doesn't just come to bring salvation. Notice that verse 5 says that at this time, God's people will seek the Lord, will fear the Lord. This point is is pushing us towards and and, uh, pointing us, I should say, towards Pentecost. Well, Christ will send His Spirit, pour out His Spirit upon His people so that we now strive to obey Him. Because we have a greater measure of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, we can obey God's law in ways that our forefathers couldn't. Forefathers still had the Spirit, but they were living, living before Pentecost. We can seek the Lord, fear the Lord, in new ways, because we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here we see God's undeserved love, making unattractive people Attractive. Make an unholy people holy. Not only in salvation, right, we have Christ imputed righteousness, but actually an inward righteousness that the Holy Spirit is growing in us each and every day, which will reach uh, perfection in the life to come. So we who are trusting in Christ are witnesses of God's creative love. God's creative love for His covenant people. And this is the hope that sustained israel in hosea 3 as they were living in rebellion as they were in exile and this is the hope that is meant to sustain us as we are in our own pilgrimage as we are not yet in our heavenly homeland the true king david has indeed come he's come he's brought salvation and through his holy spirit sanctification so brothers and sisters a few weeks ago we considered uh, Paul's words at the beginning of Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This, in fact, is the creative love of God. A love that was illustrated here tonight in Hosea's uh, marriage with Gomer, and a love that's displayed not only in the history of Israel, but in our very own lives. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that The God that the prophet Hosea served is indeed our God in this moment. We thank you for your love that is wholly undeserved, your love that does not give up on us, and ultimately your love that is demonstrated most clearly in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us and by his Holy Spirit, transforming us more and more into your image and likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.